welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. This is your host, Ken Mossman, and today I am absolutely delighted to be joined for Act One of my conversation with Michael Naylor. And Michael begins Part One here uh, with talking about himself as a quiet, shy, and sensitive kid who used sports to navigate the world of his younger days. Uh, he found his way via baseball to a full-ride scholarship at Oregon State University. And while he makes no bones about the fact that he was competitive, absolutely, Michael shares how being a tender-hearted athlete also contributed to his team's performance. He goes into talking about how being the default family psychologist as a young kid got pretty old pretty quickly, and later how the outside pressures of identifying as an athlete led to budding awareness and inner exploration. Michael walks us through his experience of releasing his baseball identity and crossing the wilderness of deep, deep self-examination through his reading, through counseling, and a rich variety of inner work. His commitment to learning and healing is absolutely inspiring, and that's all before he even begins to get into his stories about recovery and his own travels in that arena. Quick reminder to subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite podcasting service. And with that, let's go ahead and get into this rich conversation with Michael Naylor. Enjoy. Michael Naylor, welcome to Mojo for the Modern Man. It's good to have you here. Uh, good to be here with you, Ken. Yeah, thanks. I know it's been it's been a long time since we saw one another face to face. And of course, the people who are listening can't see us face to face. And we are. Um, so let's start here. What was it like growing up in your part of the world? Well, I grew up in uh, in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I grew up in a, a family that uh, adored sports, and I happened to love sports myself. So uh, at a very early age, my passion was uh, baseball, basketball, football, track, and um, uh, that was my sort of doorway to feeling like I had a place amongst kids because I was really quiet and shy. But when I was on the playing field, uh, there was another person who showed up and I had energy and fire and I loved to play and just brought me so much joy and I was really good at it. So that gave me uh, sort of like a status uh, because, uh, you know, if you're good at sports, then your team may w be more likely to win. And But that was really uh, what was my uh, tool for, you know, navigating life because I was a really sensitive little boy and I I felt things really deeply. And, and when there was uh, trouble in the household, mom or dad was suffering, I just, I really felt it in spades and didn't really know uh, what to do about it. And um, so, you know, that, that kind of sensitivity to understanding what was going on with them, you know, I, I, I became a, a mini, miniature psychologist by age 10, uh, coach, you know, coaching my mother through her, uh, uh, her different emotional sufferings. And uh, so that wasn't so good for me. Uh, I took on things that were none of my work and uh, carried my mother's sorrow with me for quite a while until I dropped it. But in the meantime, you know, uh, I got to play sports and play on a lot of really wonderful teams where, you know, at, in terms of men coming together, uh, 
boy, the championship teams I was on, it just guys came together and loved the game and loved each other. There was a way that a kind of unified feel field would form uh, on the really good teams that I played with. And we became really good friends. And that was really my, um, uh, my favorite place to be aside from, you know, speculating on life and death and, and uh, you know, the nature of reality, which I started thinking about way too early. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I was just saying, if we lost a baseball game, I would cry. If we lost a basketball game, uh, you know, I, I was very sensitive. My mother was okay with that. My father was a little bit embarrassed. Um, but anyway, that, that's how, <clears throat> that was sort of the, uh, the kind of, uh, atmosphere I grew up in, in Oregon. And, and I'm curious, the, was there one, one, cause you named track, uh, baseball, basketball, football, kind of the big, the big, the big four in the world of American sport. Um, uh, was there one that, that kind of outweighed the other? Well, actually baseball, basketball and football. I, I just seem to have natural capacities for all three of those. And, uh, you know, I went to uh, uh, went to college on a full ride baseball scholarship to Oregon wow. State University. And uh, and also, you know, uh, was one that wanted me to play basketball, too. I was very good at basketball. I just seemed to have that kind of instinctive awareness that you really need in those sports. Uh, so, yeah. So so that's you know, I had a. Uh, and in football, I dropped out of football uh, when we went to high school because I didn't want to get injured. I saw my friends getting broken bones. I said, I, I don't want this. So anyway, um, th those two sports though, were where I really stuck with for quite a while. How do you imagine your, if it did, I don't know, how do you imagine your sensitivities helped you as an athlete? Well, I think uh, what it did was it, it allowed me to be sensitive to how the other guys were doing. And, and that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of emotional sensitivity, kindness, uh, uh, noticing when they were down, just, you know, that on some level helped all of us connect and be more at ease with each other. So it wasn't something I thought about consciously, but, I, you know, I had a, you know, I was a pretty tenderhearted athlete, even though I was a, you know, competitive player playing to win. Uh, I was also really aware of, of how guys were doing, if they had their feelings hurt. I mean, it sort of was an interesting mix uh, uh, at that time. But it really, uh, I think it, you know, it contributed to, you know, maybe providing um, more possibility for us to, to think as a team, as, a, as, as one sort of one being, rather than sort of separating into our ego story. So I don't know. It's just my theory. Um, but, uh, yeah, I always really liked the guys I played with. So uh, if nothing else, they felt liked. It's <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> great. And, and, and I'm wondering, because you mentioned being the, you know, the, the, the in-house psychologist, particularly for your mom, when did, it, when did you discover that that was kind of not a cool thing? I'll put it that way. Yeah, I, let's see. I think it was... Uh, I can't quite remember when it was, but uh, it suddenly occurred to me, you know, that I was carrying her story and uh, that I, I didn't need to do it anymore. Uh, just something occurred and I realized, you know, that the dynamic that I unconsciously got caught into was that my mother 
would share all of her least popular moments about my father. And really, I started to really not like him and not like mm. his maleness. And I started not liking my maleness. And there was a whole web of misunderstandings that would take about 25 years to pull out and clear so I could actually be here without all of that baggage. But yeah, somewhere in there, I, I think it was after, might have been when I read the book Summer Hill or something along those lines that something went off this, that just said, hey, you know, you're uh, you're not supposed to be your mom's counselor, That especially at age 10. And, and what I discovered is when I gave that up, one of my other siblings took over the role. I said, that's yeah. good. You've got it. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah, I, I, had, I went through a big uh, break with my family and moved to the other side of the country and quit sports and went through this whole thing of just feeling like I had really been uh, over-identified with being an athlete and I kind of lost my own soul. So I let go of my scholarships and quit playing sports on, on that level, which was a um, quite a huge shock to my family because, you know, I had so much press and people following me and baseball scouts wanting to uh, draft me. And I just said, I, what it was, I read the book called The Primal Scream. Mm. And that just opened up uh, some awareness about my inner life and what was going on internally that I I had never considered. And uh, so I took off and went to California and did primal therapy and, you know, started my uh, my inner search uh, probably around 22 or 23. I do hope you're enjoying the conversation with Michael and myself here on Mojo for the Modern Man. Quick reminder, if you haven't, please do subscribe on your favorite podcasting service. Let's dive back in. What if you if you can rewind a bit and look at the well you mentioned the books um i have an assumption and i'll bounce it off you and my assumption that some 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 of what led you to the books was an under was a, a sense of yeah something's not quite right here or uh, you know for for a 20 something for particularly a young 20 something to be able to pull apart that the identity pieces in there you know, to to pull the the to understand, to have that kind of complex understanding that, oh, you know, uh, th- this this I uh, athlete identity is not the whole of me, mm-hmm. is 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 pretty advanced. So when you know what what's what's your sense of what actually had you look there to begin with? Well, I think there was uh, again. Uh... There was a book, uh, The Art of Loving by Eric Frome, which I mm. read when I was 15, and I it blew my mind. I realized that we didn't know how to love each other in my family, and I started confronting my mother and father about that, which they were not too cheered up about that, but it was like, it's obvious, but we're not kind to each other. What's going on here? And, and, and uh, from there, uh, it seemed like... Um, uh, the next thing that came along was uh, Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, sometimes a great notion, and then the electric Kool-Aid acid test. And something in there said to me that I had, I didn't know what it meant to be my authentic self, who I was. And then I read The Primal Scream, which is all about letting go of suffering that blocks your ability to be real. And that kind of collection of ideas just seemed to 
it really shook me up. I said, "Oh my God, I'm just I feel like I'm just lived the role. I'm a baseball player. That's how who I call yeah. myself." And uh, uh, and just felt uh, just this compulsion to really change that. And uh, if I knew how difficult it was going to be to let go of that athletic star role, I may not have done it because it was like walking into the desert with no water. You know, people were really angry with me and I didn't know where I was going. I just had an idea of where I was going. And so, you know, I took a leap and I'm, I'm glad I did, but it was really hard. I was really a shock to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of what I'm hearing in all this, and, and I think this is, this is, this is, this is great that you're bringing all this in Michael, because you know, how often do we in our work see where one's, you know, one has collapsed so much into their identity as a, I'm, I'm, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a businessman, I'm a, I'm an executive, I'm a, you know, I'm a father, I'm a this, you know, whatever it happens to be. And when either when that role ends, um, usually when that, either that, when, when oftentimes when that role ends, there is that sense of, of marching through the desert, like, wow, who, who you know who or what you know what am i now yeah who am i without without the that external identity and i think the other thing that really got my attention was that at the time when i was reading um the primal scream it talked a lot about grieving and crying and i thought you know i haven't shed a tear for 10 years that's bizarre Mm. And, and and i felt like i was really cut off from my heart and my deeper emotions so for whatever reasons, I just said, I got to find out about this. I got to know what shut me down. And then I you know, went into the therapy, which was really about getting in touch with deep emotional states, very much similar to something today that's called the Hoffman process, which is mm-hmm. uh, very much the uh, same process. So, yeah, um, I was just compelled to go there, uh, much to my mother and father's dismay. They're going, oh, my God. <laughs> so anyway, so I guess I had to do it. <laughs> What's your sense of where that sensitive kid went for the for the that period of ten years? Well, I think I was still really sensitive, uh, but I just um, had lost contact with more of the feeling expression of it. But I was sort of, I was often really uh, chewing on things that other kids weren't. So I, you know, aside from being this you know rabid athlete. The other time, I was always alone. I only had one friend. I was, and in classes, I was really quiet. I didn't. I was very shy around girls. It was like, oh my god, well, I don't know how to speak English, you know. But <laughs> so you know, I was. So I, I, I did a lot of you know, sort of reflecting internally, uh, but didn't really have an outlet until I got a little bit older and started, you know, speaking up. Yeah. 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 And as you look at the high points of the the journey from, you know, from, from leaving the, from leaving the cocoon of baseball, so to speak, Mm. to, uh, to the, the work that you started to do, what were the, what were the high points or pivot points along that, along that route? Mm. Well, I got, uh, along the way, you know, I got really interested in, um, a certain form of spiritual practice, uh, meditation on a daily basis. There was a there was a community in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, 
There was an offshoot of Findhorn in Scotland mm. that did a lot of work around attuning to nature and to plants and, and just a lot of inner work. Uh, and uh, I think the, the book that really sort of shook me out of things was one by Claudio Naranjo on how to meditate. And then Ram Das had a book on meditation. And I started meditating and following my breath and letting the thoughts go and and then one day I had this amazing experience where it just felt like my heart blew open and I just loved everybody and everything. And I was just like, oh, my God. And I was an atheist at the time. Right. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like I felt like it was from another dimension. And I just felt so much loving kindness and care. And and, uh, you know, I went to the community and said, I think I need to move down here with you. And they said, oh, no, give yourself a year. Settle down. You'll return to normal, uh, but enjoy it while it lasts and, and keep working on it. And then that's when I came into recovery around addiction and stopped, uh, started AA and uh, dropped all my addictions because they said to me, you're not going to have these kind of experiences again unless you stop drinking. And so I said, all right, that's what I'll do. And, um, and that was about 39 years ago that I started on that journey. And, and it, you know, slowly evolved into uh, other things um you know i got involved in something called the forum and mm -hmm. the six and the sixth day and one of the practices that this one guy uh, had us do was just a simple sitting where you follow your breath and keep your guy, uh, gaze on an object and and he said something like you know if you did this for three days you would see your entire neuroses in spades and you would begin to learn how to drop it it would just start to fade away and so that got me on a, a, a Zen path uh, for a number of years uh, until I, you know, ran into another path, which was uh, the Diamond Heart work and then the Gurdjieff work. And uh, so all along the way, there's been some uh, some sort of framework where I've, you know, been really working on developing a more ability to see myself, experience myself in the moment, be more present, you know, notice what my reactive patterns are and learning to uh, restrain them from time to time so that I wasn't so uh, emotionally volatile when I got triggered. Uh, so, you know, that's that's sort of squeezing together 30 years in about 10 sentences. But, uh -huh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I just started doing one thing after another to, you know, try to heal. Um, and I just didn't realize it was going to take so damn long, right? I thought I I should be through this in five years. It's like, <laughs> no, it may be five lifetimes. So. Anyway, uh, yeah, and what because you 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 dropped the drinking and recovery piece in there, um, uh, and hadn't mentioned it up until up until a couple of minutes ago, and and what uh, again, you know, as we're as we're unpacking the uh, life, oh Michael here, <laughs> what uh, we've we've I've had a lot of guests on here uh, who uh, shared their journey through addiction so thanks um and and what um when did you when did you start and if you can recall uh why well um you know that particular experience i had where i felt like you know the universal force of the divine poured through me for about six months and all of a sudden i liked everyone and then it disappeared that got my attention and i didn't drink during that time mm. and then i started drinking again and it's like the same old crummy self popped up you know the alcoholic self and 
I think it was it was sort of lucky. Uh, I was uh, teaching a fitness class, and I was uh, 30, uh, 31, and I was on a graduate assistantship at the University of Maine in uh, in Orno, and I uh, did a fitness class at six in the morning uh, every day for five days, and uh, I would lead you know professors around the gym and we do stretching and running and all that and have conversations. And so one day I'm in line, the guy behind me says, you know, you smell a lot like a Kahlua sombrero. I said, well, yeah, of course. I, I was at the bar all night. I had a great time. He said, oh, I just want you to know you're, you're carrying it pretty well. So in the course of several weeks, I remember talking to one of the guys and I said, you know, I think I might have a drinking problem. And he said, well, how often do you drink? I said, oh, only maybe twice a week. He said, well, probably five times a week, don't you think? And uh, he said, why don't you come to an AA meeting? And I said, nah, nah, I don't need that. And then after about the fifth time, I said, I'm going to go to a meeting just to make him feel better, right? So I go to, to a meeting. To make him feel better. That's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm in the meeting. I go, oh my God, I've got this. I've got this. Uh, I've got this addiction. This is where I belong. So it was kind of. It wasn't that people hadn't told me before that they thought I had a drinking problem. But you know, the problem when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see it. It's like my. I realized that while I was in my substance abuse, substance abuse, I could not really remember very well 24 hours behind me. So I couldn't collect all the experiences and go man, you need help. But people around me said, I think you got a problem. And I would just always think that they were a pain in the neck. And then I just something, uh, a light went off when I went to an AA meeting. And um, I just felt like my eyes opened up and went, wow. So I started kind of, you know, accidentally uh, doing it for his benefit. And it happened to work out for me. So it was a lucky break. That was very generous of you. <laughs> I tell you, it doesn't get much better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Ken Mossman, your host here on Mojo for the Modern Man, and of course, my guest, Michael Naylor, for this first half of our conversation. If you want to reach out to Michael, you can do so via his socials or via his website, and all of those links are on the notes for today's show. And if you want to reach out to me, you can do that via my website. That's Cirrus Leadership, C-I-R-R-U-S Leadership.com. And when you visit, you'll see links to my classes page. There's an I Am program, an Integrated Adult Man program, that is launching the next cohort's launch in January of 2022. Love to see you there. And there's all sorts of other goodies to be found there as well. So I do hope you come by and visit. Last thing, if you have not yet, please do subscribe to Mojo for the Modern Man on your favorite podcasting service. And again, join me back here for the second half of my conversation with Michael, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Be well, make it a great day. Take care.